It's a Monday, and we always have a lot of news to talk about on Mondays on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope you had a good weekend. It was beautiful. And it's going to continue to be, it seems, for at least another day or so. Let's begin. A year after the pandemic freed people across the nation to work from wherever they wished, how many of them have chosen Northeast Ohio? Laura Johnston, this is a shot in the arm for people in Cleveland who are looking for some good news. They really like us. Yeah, this is great news. I don't have a total net population increase, but the number of LinkedIn members, because this is a LinkedIn survey, increased 6% between last April and this February. And that makes Cleveland fifth out of 38 metro areas that they looked at. Four that did better are Salt Lake City, Jacksonville, Richmond, and Sacramento. But This isn't just one survey. A recent U-Haul survey found that Ohio ranked fourth in one-way truck crossings. And so people are moving here because of the lower cost of living, because there's more space. And uh, Cleveland and Ohio officials have been working on this for quite a while. We talked, oh, I don't know, a few months back about the billboard campaign that they had about saving for a rainy day, billboards in Seattle and some in New York. DeWine wants to spend another $50 on this. So this is really good news for moving to Cleveland. I guess you could say that weird billboard campaign worked, but it's cooler coming here. And the thought that mobile young people want are outdoor recreational opportunities, which are plentiful and a low cost of living. It's it's pretty cool when you don't have to be near the employment centers on the coasts. This is a pretty good place to live. And I grew up on the East Coast, so I have the good comparison. And we're so progressive here. This is Jane. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we keep getting young mobile professionals here, maybe we'll become more so, Jane Cahoon. You know, I wonder also how much Yo, the Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I wonder how much the the implications of climate change are causing people to move from the places that once were considered so desirable, like California and Florida and things like that, and moving moving back. I have some friends who live in California who are now contemplating the move back because of the wildfires. I mean, that threatens their home every year. And it seems like the wildfire season is becoming longer and longer. And, you know, that we have friends in Miami who are saying that they keep getting dropped by their insurance carriers because of the flooding or because of the hurricane season every year. And uh, they're constantly shopping for for insurance. And it's it's so expensive. So, you know, come to Ohio. And well, let's face it, <laughs> climate change has made our winters much shorter. It's not as, <laughs> and I've lived here 25 years, and I the difference in the winters then and the winters now is pretty profound. Not saying that we should continue to do greenhouse gases. I'm saying that it's made our winters. We are the problem. planet's only beneficiaries of climate change. <laughs> <laughs> well, have, they, I mean, they've talked about that, that this is the idea the Great Lakes are going to end up. We got plentiful water. We don't have hurricanes or wildfires. And I think Buffalo was named like a climate proof city, but we're pretty close. So like, yeah, I mean, I think we should push that to other people along with the fact that we have a lot of space here. And I've always thought that like Cleveland isn't the most exciting place to visit, but it's sure nice to live here. Yeah. It's a great base from which you can visit places like Utah and Jacksonville. You're (laughs) listening to This Week in the CLE. Where do we rate this on the hypocrisy scale? Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says he would not have voted for the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, but he plans to take the money. Jane Cahoon, this is one of those that either live by your principles or you don't live by your principles. What's he doing? Well, allow me to explain this, Chris. If you are a Republican, you didn't and you wouldn't 
vote for this bill. That was universal in Congress. So, I mean, do you really think Mike DeWine would would go against his party in that regard? I mean, (laughs) he just wouldn't. But at the same time, he didn't say, oh, I'm not taking the money. You know, he talked about wanting to use it for things like expanding broadband and helping kids recover from learning losses they suffered during the pandemic. But he said this during a City Club interview that he did on Friday. And, you know, I mean, if you were on the subject of hypocrisy, in the same interview, he said, um, you know, that the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol was a horrible thing uh, for which Donald Trump bears responsibility. But, hey, he would welcome Trump's endorsement in his reelection campaign for governor. So, you know, if you're talking about someone kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth there, there you have it. But, but uh, Jane, I do think it, it, if you're going to say on principle, this should not have been passed, this is a bad bill for the nation, then you've got to stick by it and not take the money or you got to shut up and not say I'd vote against it because that's partisan nonsense. If you're taking the money and it's a lot of money, to improve your state, then you should say, I'm grateful that Congress is providing this aid. We have a lot of needs in Ohio, and I'll put it to good use. But to say both things, I think it ranks pretty damn high on the hypocrisy scale. He he did say he does agree with parts of the bill. He didn't elaborate (laughs) on that. And, you know, I think a big factor here is that this bill has wide public support among both Democrats and Republicans. It's just in Congress where it was just completely divided. You know, not a single Republican voted for it. So as I said, he does kind of appear to be trying to have it both ways. I mean, he he's up for re-election next year, so I don't think he wants to uh, alienate the public at large by saying, I'm not taking any of this money. And Then embrace um, it. Then embrace <laughs> it. Then say, hey, when Congress passed this money, I was grateful to get it. And here's what we did with it. Look, I'm a Democrat running against the wine. I'm going to bring this up. You know, here he is. Mr. Hypocrite says I wouldn't have voted for that. This is I, this is a problem. And like all Republicans, I have a problem with it. Let me spend it. I mean, it just, he just keeps doing things that are making it volleyballs for the you're running for governor next year. <laughs> <laughs> OK, moving on. It's this week in the CLE. Our colleague John Caniglia wrote a story over the weekend about his relationship with Neil Clark, one of those accused in the $60 million-plus bribery scheme roiling the State House. John had many off-the-record conversations with Clark before Clark died by suicide a week ago. So what did John have to say, Leila Tassi? I thought this was a really great read. I, I love how John Caniglia handled this story. He He reflected on how Neil Clark, who was tied up in the first energy bailout scandal, became this prized source over the past three months or so. And John says in the story that he had tried reaching out to him on Monday of last week and that the calls went to voicemail. And we know why that was. You know, Clark's body was found in in a home that he owned in Florida and cause of death appears to have been suicide. John described Clark as someone who didn't really need a lot of prodding to talk about what he told investigators. He just wanted to make sure that whatever he said never appeared in print. And uh, he insisted that he was never part of the inner clique of team householder. He stressed that he became involved in the House Bill 6 effort only after he was reassured that it wouldn't be tainted by illegal activity. In his conversations with John, he also freely blasted his fellow Republicans and others he once worked for 
At one point, the discussion of dark money came up and Clark detailed for John example after example of the path that, you know, through several nonprofits in describing his relationship with Clark, John also poses this interesting ethical dilemma for journalists. Should the secrets of of a reporter's source in life become public once the person dies? In this case, John protected those secrets. But it's a fascinating topic for discussion. You know, what's the statute of limitations (laughs) on such things? You know, Um, I I talked John into doing this story and we started the conversation by talking about that ethical dilemma. I I think you do have to respect that. that I, I asked him, do you think Clark expected that someday when this is all over that your conversations with him would go public and the answer is no i I don't think when people talk to you off the record they expect it ever becomes public i've had many many off the record conversations with people and and never thought about using them what what i appreciated about john's story is he didn't reveal any of that kind of thing but he talked about he, he gave you insight into what makes clark tick he also was extremely helpful to John. You know, John has had the challenging job of trying to figure out who the players are in this thing, especially with respect to what's happened in Cleveland. And anytime John would ask him about a name, he could give John the full background. Oh, that's this, that's this guy. He did this. He does this, which really helped focus John on, on keeping his eye on the ball. So yeah, it almost seemed that Clark, uh, you know, that found his conversations with John to be therapeutic, (laughs) you know, to just be unloading all of this on, on someone. And, you know, Clark is expected to release that books or I mean the, you know, yeah, yeah, the self-published book, which, you know, probably will divulge some of those secrets anyway, but I just love John's story. If you haven't read it, go read it. It has that chilling walk off too, that I just, you know, always appreciate a good walk off. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a tremendously good read. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Hundreds of Air National Guard and Army members are in Cleveland into May to help vaccinate more than 100,000 people against the coronavirus. Who are they? Where are they from? And how do they feel about being our angels? Laura Johnson, this was another one of the delightful stories of the weekend. Hannah Drown went out and really gave us the story of who these people are. And she talked about the impact on them of what they are doing. Yeah, they are just the nicest. Anybody who's been to the Wolstein Center for the vaccination clinic, and I got to go on Saturday, will come back talking about how friendly these people are, like how helpful and nice and smiling, well, behind their masks they are. But there's 300 <laughs> National Guard service members from across Ohio, some from Northeast Ohio, some who are going to school at Kent State or, you know, from Northeast Ohio, and 200 act duty soldiers, including the 101st Airborne Division. And they're at CSU every day. They're working, I mean, shift work, but the the place is open 8 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. They're greeting the public. They're taking temperatures. They provide directions. They tell you where to go. And they're actually administering the vaccine. And they are just so professional. When I was there, they actually asked people, they're like, is there anything we could do to make this process better? And some people were like, well, you, you could have more vaccine. You could make it easier to get an appointment. But And they took that in stride, but they're like anything with directions, with parking. They just seem to really you know, want to make it better for people. And they seem to be having fun while they're here. Like one guy heard me say my name because you, know, you have to tell them your name. And he's like, Johnston, did you say Johnston with a T? That's mine. But I don't think we're related. But like, they're just... <laughs> jubilant it's great yeah they they really they're and they're very caring they're very attentive they keep checking with people how do you feel and when you were there i, I talked to chris Warnowski, who went i think friday and he said 
the place was much more packed than when I was there on Wednesday. How, what, how, what percentage of the seats were filled when you were there on Saturday? I would say about half. And if people haven't been there, you know, these seats are all set up in rows six feet apart on the floor of the Wolstein Center, like where the basketball court would be. And they fill them up, at, you know, front to back. So you can see you know, they've got a big screen in the front with the time on it because you're supposed to stay 15 minutes after you get your vaccine. So they're just moving their little cart down these rows. And then when they get to the back, they'll go start in the front again. And meanwhile, they're you know sanitizing with those ultra, you know, whatever radiation lights and sanitation so that you can see where they are in the process and, and, and moving along. So about half the seats were filled. When yeah. They were, so yeah. they still have capacity. I, they had planned to ramp up day by day to today where they were supposed to be doing 6,000 a day. So I hope we see that those seats are filled because this is the way to avoid getting. The so when are they supposed to hit? Leila Tassi. When are they supposed to hit the 6,000? This week, I today. believe. Yeah. Okay. To be today. Okay. And I know lots of people are saying, you know, I go onto that getthesshot.coronavirus.gov site. It's not coming up for it's me. It's not even listed, right? Because right. It, they don't it have will it, not right. be listed unless there's available appointments. But if right. you check one time during the day, don't think, oh, that's it. Like, keep checking, keep refreshing. I got my Saturday appointments for my husband and I on Friday. I literally, every time I changed tabs on my computer, would just hit refresh. And then one time it worked. So can I just say. That's really just, stupid. That's <laughs> Thank you. Took the words out of my mouth. We are back to the refreshing process. That's exactly what people don't want. Ah, the only I'm difference, with you. though, <laughs> the only difference, though, is there is a lot more vaccine yes. available, and so people are having success. I mean, Alara, I think you originally had an appointment later next week, and they moved it to Saturday, right? Right. So I, I did cancel my appointment for Friday, but yeah, because I think everybody wants to get it as soon as they can. So and I did hear on uh, Friday from the place that had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I could have gotten it Thursday if I had not already started the vaccination. So I responded, said, "Nope, can't do it. Give it to somebody else." But it seems like people are starting to hear back, and you can get appointments. And everybody should. Ted Dieten wrote a column appealing to his fellow Republicans to stop their silly objections to it and go get the thing because Yay. life is better once that's you awesome. do. Hey, I, that's about as much of a public service as Ted could do. <laughs> no, Republican men. It's like half of them. Half of them. That was an eye-opening yes. column that he wrote. Yeah, he, he did a great job on that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the Ohio Public Utilities Commission being rocked for the past nine months by the State House corruption scandal involving First Energy and some very shady dealings by the PUCO's former chief, Sam Randazzo, who did Mike DeWine appoint to be the new chief? Jane Cahoon, we can never forget that Mike DeWine appointed Randazzo to that position, then stood by him even after the FBI raided his house and after it came out that. $4 million payment from First Energy to Randazzo. So his selection here is kind of critical that he not screw it up again. Yes, it is. So you judge for yourself. The governor picked former Franklin County Common Police Judge Jennifer French, and she's going to chair the PUCO. It's Randazzo's job. So she's not just on the commission. She's the top utilities regulator. She is a Republican who lost her reelection in November. Now, she's not to be confused with, nor is she related to Judy French, the former Ohio Supreme Court justice, also a Republican, who also lost her reelection in November and who also had been under consideration earlier for a PUCO vacancy. But 
DeWine ended up naming her to run the, the state insurance department in January. But Jennifer French is going to serve in this, a term that will run through April 10th, 2024. DeWine basically said, you know, he's talked to a lot of people about her and she's really smart. She has a reputation for studying the facts, taking a very complex set of facts and digging through that to come to a just resolution. Before she was a judge, she was a lawyer focusing on insurance litigation. She was a city council member in Westerville, which is a suburb of Columbus. And it it was interesting the way DeWine framed this. He maybe was addressing some of the criticism over Randazzo being too cozy with the utilities when he said, she has no background in the industry, period, which I think in this unique point in time is a real asset. So. Well, I would argue it would always be an asset. I mean, the, the, the idea that you should have somebody from the industry regulating the industry is kind of bogus to begin with. But it does seem like it's a recognition by him that he bollocks this up terribly by putting Randazzo into that role. That's his. I mean, when he runs for re-election next year, again, the people challenging him are going to say he's the guy that put Randazzo in the role of the regulator and look what he was up to. So more liabilities for Mike DeWine. At least he seems like he's gone in the right direction here. I think the people that represent the consumers were hoping you'd have a consumer advocate in the role for the first time, whatever. But at least this is not. Yeah, they didn't quite get what they wanted. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did former Northeast Ohio Congresswoman Marsha Fudge violate the Hatch Act when she talked with reporters last week in her new role as secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development? And is this a big deal? Laila Tassi, she kind of made a mistake here. Yes, and, and she, she acknowledged it, too. So Marsha Fudge, as you said, now the HUD director, was at the podium last week during a White House press briefing where she was discussing the American Rescue Plan's effects on housing. When a reporter asked her if she would weigh in on Ohio races to succeed her in Congress and also to succeed retiring Senator Rob Portman, and she went ahead and made a comment, though she didn't endorse anyone. She said, I think we're going to put a good person in that race no matter who we choose. We have a good shot at it. I know people have written off Ohio. I haven't written off Ohio. I believe we can win the Senate race. So the next day, ethics experts told the Washington Post that that Fudge might have violated the Hatch Act, which bars executive branch officials from political campaigning in their official capacity. And Fudge issued a statement basically apologizing and saying that she should have trusted her instincts and not answered the reporter's question. But, you know, it could be a big deal depending on, on you know, whether or not there actually is a complaint filed and whether punishment is recommended for her and how President Biden wants to handle it. And how he views her response. Punishments for these violations kind of range from a fine to removal from office. We know that these kinds of violations, of course, were, were prevalent during the Trump years. Yeah. Some of the, how many some people of the, lost know, their right. jobs in the Trump years? Zero. And, uh, you know, Kelly Ed Conway was constantly uh, just brazenly violating the Hatch Act. And officials were even leading chance of four more years from the podium. <laughs> so Trump never disciplined anyone who was found to have have violated it. And uh so I Although think that, that that's up to Joe Biden's discretion. Yeah, I, I don't think we want to set our standards based on what the Trump administration <laughs> did. That was a low bar for good behavior in a presidential administration. We ought to do what's right. I do think there's some room for a new cabinet member to make sure. a mistake now and then. I hope 
but I hope this doesn't attach too badly. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the new rule on how close students can get in school? Is social distancing really this variable, Jane Cahoon? I, I, I think there's the, the rule, and then we should talk about what's really happening in the schools. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently it is variable, as long as kids are, are wearing masks. So the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reduced its recommendation for the distance between students from six feet down to three feet apart if everybody's wearing a mask. And obviously this is important because it makes it easier to get kids back into classrooms if you don't have to keep them six feet apart. They're still recommending that adults should stay six feet apart from each other and from children. And if they're if the students are eating or participating in an activity without masks like choir or band, they should still maintain the the six feet minimum. Or if they're in an area with high community transmission for like middle and high school students. But anyway, the you know, Ohio was maybe a little bit ahead of this already. We had already relaxed the quarantine recommendations for students who didn't meet this six feet uh, minimum. If you recall, the, the state did a bunch of COVID testing in schools in November and December, and that data showed that the incidence of coronavirus cases in students who were quarantined due to exposure was about the same as those who were um, farther away or outside of the classroom, but in the same grades. But both rates were about 3%. So in Dece- back in December, Governor Mike DeWine announced that Ohio wouldn't require students to be quarantined if they were exposed in the classroom, you know, as yeah. long as they, they wore the masks. So Although anyway. This isn't really about quarantine. This is about space. When, when this popped right. up, I turned to my wife and I said, hey, the CDC just reduced the distance from to three feet. And she burst out laughing. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. They were never at six feet. They're right. not really at three feet. Yeah. They do whatever they want. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's you know, they kind of wear masks, but not really. So, <laughs> so I, I think the, the pragmatic effect of this is nil, that the teachers are doing the precautions they need to, to not get sick and be vectors. And, and thanks to Mike DeWine, they've mostly been vaccinated. But the three foot rule. OK, it's great, but. <laughs> I don't think the CDC's been in a school. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did the Medina High School girls soccer coach have to resign? And what's the story behind the Solon High School principal who did not have to resign? Layla Tassi, we had some significant issues with high school officials in Northeast Ohio over the past week. E- yes. Yeah, so initially it seemed that the Medina girls soccer coach, I believe his name is Brad Wojnarowski, had resigned to spend more time with his family. That's what he was telling the the press, or that's what the school district said. But as it turns out, the district forced his resignation after a former player called him out publicly for creating a toxic environment for girls. Former player Allie Martin, who's now a senior playing for Cleveland State University, quit the Medina team when she was in high school years ago because of Wojnarowski's treatment of the girls. And recently, six years later, Wojnarowski posted a video of a player scoring on Allie Martin with the caption, so this is why this clown never played for us. And uh, Allie Martin called the school's attention to it. She she wrote, you know, this is the person you employ. Brad Wojnarowski should not be working with young women or any athlete for that matter. These are the comments he makes about former players six years later. And, uh, you know, in an email to Cleveland.com, Wojnarowski said, 
this kind of astounded me. <laughs> he said he meant to tweet that mess his message privately to another coach, not to make it public. He said he's sorry and you know, I, I, I'm i sorry. I just don't think that's good enough. <laughs> well, he's, he's... Who says, like, oh, I didn't mean for that to go well, public. I meant, to, ma- I meant to make that disparaging comment privately. <laughs> In his long email, he wrote about, like, how tired he was and how hard it was to be a coach. And I just wanted to be oh, yeah, like, please. dude, you're not like an ICU nurse working in the <laughs> pandemic. Right. Right, exactly. It's once again, anything you put into the digital space is very, has a chance of being public. It's just sad that the guy who is there was there to guide these young players, some of whom I'm sure are hoping to to use their playing to get into college, would think about a a former student that way. And it's six years later. why, Why does he still care? It's pretty venal and it says something about him. Laura Johnston, the Solon High School principal story is interesting. We we all talked a couple of times on this podcast about how unfair it seemed yeah. that the school has suspended her for a long period of time based on an anonymous complaint from a fictitious email, which is still troubling because any high school student now knows if I want to slow things down around here, I can lodge an anonymous complaint. But the records of the police investigation, I think, are probably causing Solon parents to be concerned. What's the backstory? Yeah, absolutely. I feel bad the way that we talked about this in the podcast and the way that it was presented to us from her lawyers and the way that she was cleared made it sound like it was completely made up, that there was no basis in reality. And it turns out based on the documents from police interviews that there was a relationship that happened 15 years ago, but it was with a former student who was just out of high school And that's the discrepancy. So while I was under this impression that it was completely made up, it just turns out that the person had graduated. And and then there was like talk about kind of grooming while they were a student. And that is really troubling. That's the part that and and her attorney just went over the top, Larry Zuckerman, about how this was facetious and there's no truth to it. But the student said, while I was a student, she'd give me gifts. She visited my parents. She gave me all this undue attention. Right. And, she could get away with anything at school. And the teacher was, the, the principal was 33 and the student was 19 when this was going on. It, it just raises questions about the judgment of the principal. You, you, you wouldn't want even the perception of the community to be the possibility that you're using your, your position to build relationships. It mm-hmm. was it was really enlightening. I mean, I still you still have to question taking action on anonymous complaints. You would think that the school might have been able to kind of quietly look into this to see if there was something before publicly suspending the te- the principal and and taking those steps. But man, when the final details came out, it is disturbing stuff. Absolutely. And it it, it raises questions about what she was doing while she was vice principal back in 2005. And so it's very different to be like, look, there's no law broken here. She's not charged with anything. That's a different statement than she's completely a a victim of a fictitious complaint. Right. And the student came in anonymously, but but the student did raise the hand because they felt like this should be discussed. Here's the thing. We all went to high school, some of us much longer ago than others. How do you think... 
this principal can walk through the hallways of that school now. I mean, every high school kid for the rest of her career will know this story. Oh, absolutely. And every parent. And I mean, sure, she's back on the job now, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, I think in the past, they probably would have done a quiet investigation and then tried to negotiate something to quietly remove them. This is just a very unusual outcome for this. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, dang, guys, we got through it all. I was worried we were going to stretch the time limit because we had so much to talk about. and We had stuff we still didn't put on here because it was a very newsy weekend. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 